Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. Well, that's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10X. There's a quick application there and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. You are listening to the Build Your Network Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. My name is Eric Skrzynski. I'm Travis Chappell's producer. And on this Veterans Day holiday, we're taking three guests who have served in the United States Armed Forces and giving some of their best takeaways, advice, or life stories and putting them into today's midweek mashup episode. On today's episode, first up is Yost Jansen. He's a former Navy SEAL, counterterrorism agency hire, trainer, advisor, and stunt performer. Next up is Aaron Hale. Aaron Hale 
Gill is a chef and a 14-year military veteran who became blind after surviving an explosion in Afghanistan and became deaf a few years later. He founded a chocolate business, EOD, with his wife, Michaela Hale. And last up, but not least, is Eric Kapitulik. Eric served in the United States Marine Corps as both an infantry officer and special operations officer with the 1st Force Reconnaissance Company, 1st Marine Division. As a platoon commander within his company, Eric led a team of 20 covert operations specialists on numerous special forces-related missions, including long-range reconnaissance patrols, hostage rescues, high-altitude jump exercises, ship takeovers, and gas oil platform takedowns. In 1999, during a routine training mission to prepare for an upcoming deployment to the Persian Gulf, Eric and his platoon were in a helicopter crash that resulted in the death of seven Marines. In response to this tragedy, Eric created the Force Reconnaissance Scholarship Fund to benefit the children of his fallen men. Eric left active duty after eight years of service and received his MBA from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business in 2005. He founded the program in 2008. I really hope you guys listened to the entire episode. If you appreciate anything in the show, be sure to take a screenshot and tag Travis Chapel on Instagram with the handle at Travis Chapel. All right, guys, let's get into the show. I never thought about being a Navy SEAL growing up. That wasn't even on my radar. I grew up in Canada, and uh, I didn't even know what a Navy SEAL was. It wasn't until the Charlie Sheen movie came out that I, I actually heard about Navy SEALs. Yeah. Um, but what happened, was I, uh, I went and moved to the U.S. Um, I married the girl of my dreams and became a paramedic, which is exactly what I was pursuing at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had a great life. You know, uh, uh, I love. I love the job. You know, it's one of those few jobs where I just got excited to go to work every day. Um, my wife and I also started investing in real estate and we got married when I was 20. So we were like really young, but just trying to do everything, you know, living yeah. life and, and trying to get the best out of it all. And then uh, one day, totally unexpected, uh, I got called in, in uh, halfway through my shift um, and they told me my wife was killed in a car accident. And that kind of changed everything for me. Uh, at that point, uh, I kind of spiraled into kind of a destructive pattern. Um, everything that motivated me was gone. And everything I was trying to pursue didn't make any sense anymore. Hmm. And I think after the third time getting arrested, um, I just kind of woke up one day and go, you know, something's got to change. And it had to be something drastic. So I wanted to do something difficult. So I did a little bit of research and I read some articles and some books. And my decision at the time was, well, the most difficult thing I can find to do is become a Navy SEAL. So I drove to the recruiter's office and I'm like, sign me up. And they're like, no problem. And six months later, I was off to boot camp. Wow. So... Uh, man, so much good stuff here to, to get into. And I, I, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, instead, instead of diving in some of the content right now, I'm going to kind of keep steering the story here. Cause I think there's a lot more of the story to hear about and the same themes keep getting brought up throughout the story. So let's just kind of keep moving along. So, um, so you go to boot camp and you start into the training, talk a little bit about the boot camp training and then how your body was reacting to it and what that meant for you. Yeah, I made a commitment six months before I was going to show up to boot camp. And I was on a program where you can pretty much go straight from boot camp uh, to SEAL training. And I showed up to boot camp already hurt, like an idiot. I heard that all SEALs run in boots. So I decided to go from not doing much running to running every day in boots. And I had developed uh, stress fractures in my shins. Uh, plus the shin splint aspects. I was in pain just walking at that point. But I remember thinking to myself, well, I made a commitment to show up hmm. and showed up to boot camp. Boot camp's actually, you know, Navy boot camp's not really that exciting uh, or physical. So I kind of cruised through there. I got to heal up a little bit in that process. Uh, and then kind of like got in shape a bit. And, you know, I took the screening test and then I showed up to SEAL training. I was still kind of hurt showing up to SEAL training. So when I showed up day one, I actually had no real belief in myself that I was actually going to make it through. My only goal was to see how many days I could stay there before 
uh, my injuries kind of prevented me from continuing. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. That's that's insane. So then, so then uh, what, what was the first week like? Uh, the first week I was just excited to be there. Like you could see you know, in the first few weeks, you're waiting for your whole class to show up. You can see the class in front of you doing all this fun stuff. Yeah. And I remember seeing the class in front of me. They were still in first phase before Hell Week. Okay. Uh, and then they were going through the surf in these rubber boats and paddling. And it was a super high surf day. And I remember thinking, you know, I remember seeing them hit the waves and the boat gets flipped into the air and bodies and paddles are going everywhere. And I remember thinking like, my only goal right now is to make it that far into training. So at least I have one good story to tell after <laughs> I go home that, hey, we paddled boats through the huge surf and we got tossed everywhere. And <laughs> I, I had enough belief to think I could make it to that point. And that was only yeah. in like the second week of training. And we were, we had just showed up and we're waiting to kind of class up. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was a unique experience, you know, like I had no idea what to really expect. That was yeah. back in the days where, there was no discovery channel uh, program <laughs> just kind of show you what happened. Right, I, right. Just, I read as many books as I can find, but they're all from the Vietnam era and things like that. Like they weren't, they didn't really give you a realistic picture of what you were walking into. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything that was just like crazy unexpected that you were just like blown away that you had to do that after you just finished something really brutal? Like, was there any point where you're like, wait, seriously? <laughs> or did that happen? Like, was that a daily occurrence to where it was just too normal to even think about? Yeah. I, usually it's not one thing that, that really goes, Oh wow, this is like super crazy. It's the cumulative effect of everything. Okay. And SEAL training is designed to kind of like not one individual thing is not necessarily that hard, but it's so broad. It's like, you have to be decent at everything. You don't have to be a professional athlete and everything, but you have to be decent. So if yeah. you have a weakness, if you have a weakness in the water, a weakness swimming, a weakness running, or PT and pull-ups, or uh, or just facing the cold, like whatever weakness you have, they'll find it. Yeah. And I do notice a lot of times the guys who are gifted athletes don't last very long hmm. because all their life they've relied on those physical gifts to put them in the top tier, where the guys have had to grunt it out their whole life to barely make the team right right those are the guys that were able to stick it out they're used to being feeling like they're going to die and if you're comfortable feeling like you're going to die your chances of making it through some of this hard stuff is a lot better yeah yeah I, and every time that you're in that kind of a situation you either practice quitting or you practice not quitting and um exactly uh, um I, it's just crazy to me like 
every single obstacle that came your way was another chance for you to prove that you're not a quitter instead of another, another excuse of why you can't do it. Um, and, uh, that, that, that to me by itself is fascinating. So let's, um, fast forward now, like to the end of boot camp, and something goes wrong with your, um, um, your citizenship or something like that. And you think that you just like are about to be out of the whole thing, even though you just like went through the gauntlet. Yeah. Well, you know, boot camp is, is a little different than the actual buds. Boot camp is what every military person goes through just to okay. enter the military. And then the buds, which is a seal training is the, the screening process for, um, to know, to see if you can continue on to become a seal. So during those seven, six to seven months of SEAL training, they're not really training you so much as they are finding the right people to train. Hmm. So let's say, you know, if 200 people start, it's not unusual for 25, 28 guys to come out the other end. Hmm. Uh, and once that's completed, then they're like, okay, now we can really start training. you. Okay. Uh, and you have to find out, like, it's not enough to not quit. Right. You also have to function you know, at that point when you're cold, you're miserable, you're hurting and everything like that, you haven't slept, you're tired, then you have to function, you have to lead, you have to perform. Yeah. And yeah. A, a lot of the misnomer is like, well, I just won't quit and that'll be enough. You know, yeah. it is, you know, it, it's sad to see some guys that are tough as hell and then fail an academic test, you know, like dive physics or something. It's, it's like, it used to drive me crazy to see that. Like you went through all that and you you that gets you like a simple test um but it does something gets everybody but for me you know i started off with um severe shin splints found the way over that a little early on in training using orthotics but the side effect of that was it kind of reformed my foot so now i had what's called iliotibial band syndrome it's like on the outside of your knee gets so inflamed and I remember like the first, second week of training, it was so bad that if I would just bend my knee, you could hear it squeak from like five feet away and, and just it. So it wasn't anything that did permanent damage, but the pain was just horrible. Mm-hmm. And then I remember one instructor telling me, it's like, Hey, if you want to get over it, you know, you go at the end of every day, go get a big ice pack, strap it to your knee and sleep all night with that ice pack on, you know, me being a former paramedic, I'm like, well, that's really bad medical advice, but I did it anyway. And it worked, um, with the risk of causing frostbite to your, you know, permanent damage. I didn't care. I just wanted to get through the next day and I did it every night and it got me through the next day. And then I went into hell week. So hell week is a portion of training. It's a fifth week of the first phase where you stay awake for five and a half days and you're constantly cold, miserable. Um, and the whole purpose of that is to see who is really, you know, who can really actually like uh, finish the training. So that's where most people quit is, is either before or during that hell week phase. And if you make it through hell week, they start believing like, okay, he's tough enough to make it. So now, they'll test you on other things later on in training. Is he good enough in the water? Can he do tactics? Can he do all the other stuff? Um, but during hell week, I was really stressed because I didn't have my ice anymore. But by that time, you know, I'd iced it enough where the injury was reduced to the point where it didn't stop me. Yeah. And yeah. then I remember we're probably on the fourth night of hell week and they're doing an evolution where you run with the boats on your head. And they just run you and run you and run you. I remember one time the boat bounced up and came down on my head and tore some of the ligaments in the back of my neck to the point where I couldn't lift my head again under my own power. So I had to, like, whenever I could, either my chin was right on my sternum down or I had to free up a hand to hold my head up. (laughs) Uh, And I remember going through the last, you know, two days of, of Hell Week and every instructor thought I was, like, like mentally out of it because I yeah, looked yeah. like crap. Uh, and I had to several times sit there and convince them like, Hey, I'm okay. I'm answering the question's good. It's just my neck. You yeah. Know? I just got to <laughs> hold my head up when I talk to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, you know, after how week, um, you know, they give you one week to kind of, you know, it's the only week in seal training where you're allowed to walk, you're allowed to walk for five days because you are so injured 
swollen and you know, and all the all the stuff on your body is trying to heal up you're allowed to walk and i remember i was able to walk and then when it's time to run again and my body couldn't run and they sent me into medical and did a bone scan and, and found out i had a femoral neck uh crack in my left femur and so i had to get rolled back and let that heal and uh at that point um i had to repeat you know, I got sent back two classes, had to repeat um, a significant chunk of the training again. And but then I was on the roll, like went through dive phase and went through third phase. And I felt like every challenge I was up to it. One of the things in third phase I was really worried about, we did a 14 mile run where I calculated the pace was somewhere at a seven, 10 mile. Uh, on, wow. in soft sand and i'm like man so i'm like always stressing about that but the crazy thing is by the time you get there your body adapts to the point where you're able to do that so it wasn't nearly as big of a thing in my head as i made it which is a good lesson in itself too yeah um yeah. and then uh then two weeks before graduation we're on saint clemente island we're in the last week of actual training and then we come home and then we graduate the week later and they pulled me into the office and said, we have to kick you out of training because you are not an American citizen. And because you're not an American citizen, you cannot get a top secret clearance. And so you can't be in special operations. So that was pretty devastating. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you guys couldn't have told me that like week one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm glad they did. Back <laughs> yeah. So, but it ended up, they just basically were like, Hey, we will help you take care of this. And, yeah, they, they messed with me for 10 days. You know, they kicked me out and they called me back and say, there's no plane to fly you home. So um, off the island, back to Coronado. So why don't you just join your class again? And then the next day they're like, well, go to the airport. There's a plane coming for you. And they messed with me for 10 days. And then finally, somebody made a decision to let me graduate, put me on legal hold, and then let me sort my citizenship out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which I did pretty quickly with their help. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Man, yeah. It's, it's, so uh, this is something I want to, I kind of want to talk about. I'm sure, that, I mean, you have some crazy stories that we could definitely get into, but um, can you talk about um, how seeking out struggle, not in like a masochistic kind of a way, but um, how, how doing hard things has helped you live an enriched and successful life? The feeling you get, like when you finally, um, my dream at the time initially was, it's like, I just wanted to do something difficult. And the longer I was there, I actually wanted to do the job. You know, I went there for almost as like pain therapy, but I also found like a new family within the SEAL teams. Hmm. So I wanted it really bad. And after graduating, you feel like nothing can stop you in life anywhere like hmm. you don't care the obstacle well it's like you start believing you can do it and if you believe you can do anything typically you can do anything the military has a way of advancing you with your skills not your level of readiness and by that i mean you may not feel like you're ready to be promoted or given a leadership role, but they're going to put you there and make sure you're ready. So day one in basic training, you know, you get the, the buzz cut and you stand on the little yellow footprints and we were standing in front of the uh, recruit uh, trainee trainers and they, there was eight, it was a whole birthing full of 80 recruits. And they said, who here has some college experience two people raised their hands including wow. me and they pointed i was just the closest one the guy pointed at me and said you're the arpoc and i said what's that and he said that's the recruit chief petty officer you're now in charge of these guys wow. so that from day one i was i was placed in leadership roles i was the one you know when you see those movies where the they have the big rectangles of people marching down the road i was the one driving the bus um to the chow hall to our classes to the ranges that kind of stuff yeah. and i was immediately taught you know, how rank and and leadership and how it's supposed to work 
and the same thing went on what happened when I went on to uh, my specialty school. I'd chosen the culinary arts. Uh, I became a cook in the Navy because, well, that's, that's the direction I'd chosen at the time. And uh, I, I knew it was a passion, so I was going to be a chef when I got out, and I wanted the, the Navy to make me a cook while I was in. Yeah. I'd get a little OJT as well. But even at the A, the, they call them A schools, uh, where they, uh, they train your, each sailor for their specialty, they uh, saw me stand out as a, uh, uh, the head of the class, the student, uh, and they promoted me out of there. So by the time I'd gotten to my first duty station, I'd already gone up two ranks. And so, I'd promoted again. I'm curious to know about your mindset during all of this, because I, I have a good amount of friends that, you know, served in the military and things. And um, uh, I know that you went there for more structure, discipline, purpose and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I know, obviously, there's a lot of partying and things like that that go on at the same time. Were you at all interested in that scene? Or were you pretty much at that point where you had already figured out that you didn't want to do that at all? Uh, well, you know, the Animal House hadn't gotten completely out of me. Yeah. Uh, I, you, know, you get out of it what you put into it. And that's true for just about anything. Hmm. Uh, so I took the military for what it offered. But then I also... My my first duty station, I was sent to Italy. I was I, I was uh, I lived in Italy for four years, and uh, I was on uh, on shore duty for two of those, and on board the uh, the the commander of the Sixth Fleet uh, mm-hmm. flagship for two years in Gaeta, Italy, which is only a forty five minute commute from where I was already living. And during my on duty hours. I worked very hard. I got promoted and I, I took leadership roles whenever they were presented to me. And I, I did my best uh, at being, uh, you know, a, a sailor. And then when it was time to hang up the uniform, I became an Italian. I, I went out into the culture. I learned uh, the, the language. I learned the, the, the cuisine. I, I toured around Italy and uh, other parts of Europe, even with the, the, the ship. Uh, you know the admiral doesn't do the admiral and his uh, and the flagship. They don't do those six month cruises with uh, carrier groups. The, you know, the what was on the USS LaSalle, and it would do maybe a month or so, but it would pull into three or four ports around the Mediterranean, run up the admiral's flag, and throw a reception for the local dignitaries. Mm. And uh, it was fantastic. I got to see most. Uh, most countries that border the Mediterranean and the Aegean and the Black Sea. I got to, I mean, it was an amazing experience, an incredible learning experience, both in the uh, uniform and in my off-duty time. Yeah. So I'm curious to know now, coming from that, let's move into your story in Afghanistan. So you're you're doing all this stuff all over in the Navy and things, and then uh, and 14 years in in the military. At what point along the way do you find yourself um, in Afghanistan? Well, by 2004, both wars were were in full swing. I was out at sea with uh, the admiral and the staff, and you know we were actually seeing those those Tomahawk missiles launching from Aegis cruisers in the Mediterranean, and then we'd go turn on CNN five minutes later and watch them land. Hmm. Uh, and I, at that moment, I felt the different type of calling. It wasn't just about what uh, the the military could do for me but how I could best serve the military, my country, the constitution, the president. It was, this is why I was placed here for a reason and I need to do something more. So mm-hmm. I volunteered to be an individual augmentee. It was basically Navy and Air Force uh, individual service members filling in army roles in Afghanistan during, uh, this was 2006. Okay. And I ended up going from uh, cooking for 25, 35 of the admiral staff to five, six, and 700 NATO staff and troops out in the desert of Afghanistan. But then that's when I learned, uh, I met some EOD technicians, explosive ordnance disposal. They're the military's bomb squad. Okay. And uh, I met these guys. I learned all about 
what you know their job was, how dangerous was the tight knit community, how technical the job was. And I tell you what, I was ready to hang up my uh, my apron and my uh, my spoon immediately. I, I just wanted I wanted that. And the number one draw to this uh, occupation was that we were first responders on the battlefield. We ran towards the bombs, the IEDs, the you know, car bombs and all that mm. uh, when everybody was running away. And we saved lives. We, we saved uh, our allies, our you know, the U.S. troops and civilian lives before those nasty bombs uh, detonated. Mm. So you actually ended up enrolling in that specific job, like after, like after, so you got stationed there as a cook and then you got to know these people and you're like, yes, this, this is what I've been looking for. Right. Exactly. It was, uh, not just the discipline, you know, the duty, all of that. I'd finally found something that truly felt like a calling that Mm -hmm. direction I was looking for. Yeah. It felt like, uh, the puzzle pieces just finally sunk in and that's what I wanted to do. The only problem was the Navy, uh, wasn't, wasn't going to let me leave my cooking role. Uh, my position, my rank was undermanned and, uh, they weren't promoting, they weren't going to let me switch jobs. So my, at the end of the deployment, my contract was up. I just, instead of reenlisting, I just let my contract expire. I went over to the army recruiter handed him my paperwork and uh, swore in just this time with a different uniform on. So tell me about, but before we get into uh, when, when you were doing this and um, you ran into a big blast and changed your life around completely before that all happened. um, Can you tell me like from, from the time that you reenlisted with the army until that incident happened, how long were you doing this? And, and tell me about, just like I, I got to think that there's just an insane amount of pressure, stress, and anxiety that comes along with uh, with doing a task like that, especially in in a time that was really really turbulent over in the Middle East. Um, so, can, can you talk to me about some of those emotions that you had um, going into that type of service? Well, as you can imagine, both Iraq and Afghanistan were extremely busy. We're fighting two wars, two fronts, and uh, and a lot of the battlefield, a lot of the front wasn't, you know, person to person. It wasn't man to man. It was these IEDs. They were taking out uh, personnel. They were taking out vehicles. And the IEDs were, you know, set it and forget it type things. The, the right. bad guys could just leave it and wait till we got, got hit. So uh, the military was really uh, adding forces to the EOD community. And there was a lot of promotion. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, pressure to uh, to advance as quickly as you possibly could to fill these roles. Uh, however, you know, I um, and I was uh, uh, when I enlisted in the army. I kept my rank, so I went from petty officer to sergeant. And this, uh, uh, when this happened, I was closer. Uh, as soon as I came into the army to becoming a team leader, one of the, uh, this, this is the guy that actually you know, on a, in the army, the, the, the EOD teams are three person teams and the team leader, the most experienced one or the highest ranking one is the, uh, the one that actually goes down and works on the IED. The one that uh, has the most qualification does the job. So uh, I was quickly placed in a position where uh, I would need to know my job and fast. So uh, I went through all of my qualifications. I did a, a, the, the OJT. We did a lot of practice. It was for, uh, this was about, it was about four years. I was, I was living and breathing uh, the, the job day and night. Hmm. And uh, I deployed once to Iraq as a team sergeant. And then I, in 2011, I deployed to Afghanistan this time as a team leader. Got it. So now leading up to this, as much as you are willing to share, talk to me about what happened on the day of the blast. Um, I just returned back from my two weeks of R&R. Every service member that spends a year in deployment gets to uh, spend two weeks out uh, off the battlefield. In fact, they're required to. Hmm. Uh, 
So I sent, I was sent back home and uh, spent two weeks with the family. Got to see my my boy turn one. I got to witness my dad dress up as a uh, as Mickey Mouse, which you know, <laughs> for for his grand grandson, which is you know to know my dad is you know once in a lifetime thing. And I got to spend uh, Thanksgiving with the family, which is a very uh, special time uh, in the of the year for me. One, hmm. uh, you get to you know, uh, spend it with family. It's just another excuse to get everybody together. Plus it's uh, an excuse to just eat like a glutton. But, uh, you know, soon enough, I was throwing the luggage back in the, 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 the armored truck uh, our team uses. And I was leaving the airfield and going back out to our command outpost uh, to, to get back to work. And along the way uh, on the convoy, Convoy commander calls back over the radio and says, EOD, there's something in the road up here. I want you to take a look at it. And, you know, toss that luggage off of the robot in the back, toss the robot out of the, the truck, and we got to work. And tell, tell, me, tell me, like, what, what, like, what exactly does that mean, we got to work? What, what, like, what were you doing? Well, there wasn't much time to switch from vacation mode to battlefield mode. Um, I was right, you know, uh, right back on the job, and the robot uh, went down and does its, you know, whenever possible, we we send the robot down uh, to ins- uh, inspect before we do everything remotely if possible. Mm. Yeah, we don't yeah. want to do anything hands on if we can avoid it. So we send the robot down and it finds what 99% of all the IEDs in Afghanistan were, at least at the time, were these jugs, like oil jugs, uh, you know, it's five liter jugs of uh, uh, homemade explosive uh, with a lamp cord connected to a, a cheap piece of uh, plywood as a pressure plate and a nine volt battery. That's, that's it. Uh, the the robot took the pressure plate and you know pulled it away from the uh, the rest of the the wiring so it was separated uh, the switch was gone but the it couldn't get the rest of the ID the the, the heavy packed dirt kept the the real explosive uh, stuck in the ground hmm. and and one of the one of our primary jobs besides you know making sure we mitigate the hazard right there is that we want to collect evidence to send up. Yeah, we've got the the whole alphabet soup represented represented on the battlefield for FBI, CIA, ATF, and we send all of the evidence we can uh, from biometrics, electronics, uh, chemical analysis, so we can you know, to these guys, so that we can get to the bomb makers, the financers, all of that before the next IED can get back onto the battlefield. Right. So my job was. I put, you know, I had to go get that stuff, go get that uh, um, uh, evidence. So I jumped out of the the truck and I started making my way towards the IED. And about uh, twenty meters from the original IED, a secondary device had detonated and sent me into the sky. I uh, landed on my knees and elbows. The lights went out, and I was still conscious, but. Uh, I couldn't see. I first thought that my my helmet had been pushed over my face, hmm. uh, and um, I first did the, the the functions check, wiggled the fingers and the toes, the elbows and knees, and found that everything was more or less intact. So I reached up to fix my helmet to find that my helmet was gone, wow. and that's when I thought that's when I thought, oh no, this is bad. The army's going to want that back. <laughs> That was the first thought. Yeah. Super concerned about the, about losing your helmet. So talk to me now, like, did you immediately realize like, this is going to affect me for the rest of my life? Or were you hopeful that, you know, Hey, maybe after a day or two, I'm going to start getting some of these things back. I held a loose hope. Uh, you know, I, eye damage is, is a nasty thing. You know, they, they, they preach, uh, wearing eye protection, safety glasses everywhere at all times on the battlefield. No matter if you're going to the chow hall or you're going into a fight, the, everybody wears eye protection. And, uh, man, everything that was on my head just gotten blasted right off. Uh, so um, I'd, I'd known it was going to be bad. So there was some permanent damage there. I was hoping that I would you know, be able to see when I got, you know, when the doctors got to me. Within 48 hours, I was, uh, I was at Walter Reed. 
multiple surgeries later, the, the, the hope was gone. It was dashed. Uh, they said, you know, one eyeball was completely gone. Uh, the eyelids were even fused together in a permanent wink. Uh, and the other uh, eyeball had a, such a severe gash in it that repair was impossible. Hmm. So I'd, uh, I'd also, uh, you know, lost, I uh, blew up both my eardrums. I had cracks in my skull to the point where I was leaking spinal fluid right out of my nose. Wow. And um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Like, how, how am I going to be a blind man? How do I do what, how can I be me? Be yeah. a father, be a soldier. Um, it was some tough, tough things to face. And, uh, you know, those demons, they, they, they well, you know, in, in the you know, hospital bed, they try to creep in. So, so you now, obviously, you're coming home, right? Um, uh, you are at the point where you just don't know what's, what's next. So talk to me about how you were able to overcome something that happened, you know, tragically in your life and turn it into, um, you know, turning, you, you, you're like the prime example of somebody who turns their mess into their message, turns something un- that's seemingly super unfortunate on the outside and turns it into something that benefits you for the rest of your life. How do you reframe that at the time? And was there a period of time where you were just like pissed off at the world and didn't want to talk to anybody? And like, did you go through that phase at all? Or was it immediately just like, I can't, I can't, I can't go down this, this spiral because I don't know if I'm going to come out. Well, I definitely realized the peril in going into that spiral and the, the self-loathing, self-pity, becoming a victim. And now, it doesn't mean that I didn't have some really awful days. Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I, I looked at it. It was, it was absolutely the military training. It was, without a doubt, the support of my family. Uh, there were many veteran service organizations and the support of uh, the military while I was injured. But it was the military training that, and that mindset perspective that it had given me that said that you you uh, you adapt and overcome. And I, in fact, within the EOD, I, I use this example where uh, every three-person EOD team is given an entire shipping container full of tools from bomb suits to de-armors to power tools, chemical, hazmat, uh, decontamination kits, all everything that they might find uh, as far as explosive hazards go on the battlefield, we have a tool for it. Hmm. And then we get sent uh, the team and our shipping container to the battlefield and we get this armored truck. And the armored truck, we got to figure out what we're going to fit in there because we can't get the whole shipping container in there. So we got to leave some tools behind. So we pick, of course, the robots, the bomb suits, and a few other things we can shove into the uh, nooks and crannies and boxes all around the truck. But then in Afghanistan, most of the patrols we were doing were on goat paths that we couldn't bring any vehicles. Mm. So now we've got our rucksacks. What can we fit on our backs? And usually it was some C4, some rope, maybe some carabiners and grappling hooks. And then we got to bring water and our food and ammunition. And that's it. We got to do a job with just some C4 and some rope. Yeah. So now I'm missing, I'm missing a couple of tools. Yeah. I still, I still have to be a soldier. I'm still, I'm still active duty until they, they let me go. Uh, I'm a father, you know, I'm a brother, son. Uh, uh, you know, there are all these rules that I still have to play. I can't give up. Right. I have to carry on. Why do you think that those challenges that were in front of you motivated you comparatively to a lot of other people that it just scares them out of trying to take advantage of the opportunity. Do you find that that's more hardwired in you or now being like a leader to try to lead other people through those challenges on the other side of it? Do you see that it's something that can really be cultivated within somebody? (laughs) So it's, that's a great question. And having reflected on that exact question, I mean, any number of times in my life, whether it's at 
mile 100 of the 112-mile bike ride of the marathon or 18 mile 18 of the run of the marathon uh, when you've been out there already for nine hours, 10 hours, right? Or I'm in a tent on the side of a mountain with it getting the top of it getting blown in with 80 mile per hour winds. And I'm there and I'm thinking to myself, what in God's name are you here doing this for? Like, why are you <laughs> doing this? Right? So it's something I, I like, why do you have to do this? Right? So I think that, it, that I've spent some time upon, you know, thinking about it, it in any event. I think really it started, this is the nature versus nurture question. And I think, and from what I've seen uh, with my own parents now as a parent, as a coach of youth sports, working at the Naval Academy, the last thing I did in the Marine Corps after special operations for a brief time, I worked in the Naval Academy admissions office as a director of admissions. I, I really think that that idea of, Hey, Go try the tough thing. Go, go, go try the thing that challenges you. It's going to be okay. I think so much of that attitude can be uh, instilled as a young person if your parents instill it. M many don't. Many don't. M many parents, their, 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 their child says, oh, that, that scares me. I don't want I don't, I don't to do that. And the parent goes, oh, it's okay. You don't have to then. Yeah, they're you don't so, have to so worried about seeing their child suffer or um, or be challenged or be embarrassed or fail that they keep them from trying anything, right? That's that's right. And and and, and this gets back to, and I'm glad you used the term, this gets back to how do you define failure? Hmm, yeah. Failure, failure is not finishing second or third. Failure is not finishing last. Yeah. Failure, failure is not getting in the arena, failure is not getting in the race. Failure's not, if failure is, hey, I'm going to take this easy course and get an A, yeah, vice, yeah. I'm going to challenge myself. And you know what? I might fail it, hmm. but I'm going to give my 100%. Yep. So, yep. so much of that, I mean, how many parents, how, how many parents have, when I was at the Naval Academy said, oh man, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to have John apply. I mean, it's you. only one out of 20 get selected and his grades, are, he's not a 4.0 student. So I don't think I'm going to have him apply. Wow. I mean, that's a loser's attitude. And yeah, well, that parent is, I mean, you're get, you're doing your child such a disservice. Sure. You and know? it also, it also guarantees the result, right? Like one <laughs> way, what, like one way you have a one in 20 chance, the other way you have a zero chance. So why not take the one in 20 chance? That seems like way that's, better odds to me. That, that's right, Travis. I mean, look, you, you know, the great thing about a bio is you, I, I get to, first of all, I get to craft it and then you read it, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody on their bio ever says, and now as I'm talking about it, I think I'm going to, as, as I speak all around, you know, North America. Yeah. Instead, everybody puts all their accomplishments. Do you know how many mountains I haven't summited? Yeah. I've had to turn around on. Hmm. Do, do you know? Do you know how many races I've finished last in? I mean, I got okay. Yeah, I, got, I was North South. You know, All Star and Defenseman of the Year. My my senior year, I got benched when I was at the Naval Academy. Right? <laughs> like so. It, it, again, it's 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 how we frame failure, yeah. right. and at a very young age, parents frame it what I consider to be wrong. Sure. Number one, number two, they allow at a very young age, the, this idea of, well, this makes me nervous. And if it makes me nervous, then I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And that's when as parents, we need to provide guidance. We have to understand that as parents, we do know better than our children that they don't make decisions. We mm. make that decision for them that, Great, I know you're 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 nervous, and 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 that's challenging. Yeah, but you're gonna go and do it. Yeah, and that so that thing of it, it was it always in me. I, I don't know if it's in anybody. I I, I I thankfully had parents who instilled it very early that okay, you lost. Okay, but did you give your hundred percent? Yeah, and not giving your hundred percent. Now that's failure. Sure. So let's frame failure differently. Uh, I had parents who did that. And then at a young age, I did little challenges. And we have to basically stress inoculate ourselves. 
you know, failure, you know, losing, inoculate yourself. You have, you have those little, little losses along the way. Well, you get knocked, you get the little knockdowns along the yeah. way and you get up and you keep trying. And then, and then that grows and manifests itself, at least in my life to the Naval Academy and special operations and climbing Mount Everest, right? right. Well, For other not- people, it might, might manifest itself other ways. Yeah, it's it sounds like really it's all about building that habit, right? The building the habit of when you when you feel that nervousness, when you feel that anxiousness, when you feel that fear, building the habit of saying I'm going to do it anyway instead of building the habit of saying oh, I'm going to just go lay on the couch and watch TV instead. Um I think that's that's the that's the thing that parents are either doing or not doing. Is there is there they're building the habit that says that when I feel this way, it's okay to run and hide versus when I feel this way, this is when I need to take responsibility the most and go out there and and face this head on. Because if you can build that habit, then every time something like that happens in life, regardless of if it's a fitness goal or if you're an entrepreneur or if you're in the military, whatever that thing is, you're going to have that habit of like well, like you said, it's, it's a next challenge. Let's see if I'm up to, let's see if I'm up to it. Let's see if I can do this one. 100%. Well, that's it for this episode. If you want to connect with me and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join my free Facebook group, The Lounge. I'll see you over there and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.